0: Five years ago this month, Jeremy Corbyn was elected leader of the Labour Party.
1: Things can, and they will, change. Thank you very much.
0: The strange story of Mr Corbyn's transmogrification from eternal rebel to party leader is pretty well known. But this week sees the publication of a book that takes us down the other side of the slope, and shows how, late last year, the Corbyn Project imploded.
2: John McDonnell often says that Jeremy Corbyn is his oldest friend in politics, to which his wife, Cynthia, says, no, John, he's your only friend in politics. And I think by 2019, McDonnell felt like he had lost something of that friendship.
0: You're listening to Stories of Our Times from The Times and The Sunday Times. I'm David Aronovich. Today, how JC went from hero During the Corbyn years, few journalists had better sources deep inside the Labour Party than these two. Gabriel Pogrund. Hello, David. He's the Sunday
2: Times Whitehall correspondent. Which basically means I do politics and create
3: mischief. And Patrick Maguire. I'm here. I'm here. Hi, David. The red box reporter for The Times. I intrude into people's inboxes with reflections on the day in Westminster of varying degrees of hilarity. Together, they've just published Left
0: Out the inside story of Labour under Corbyn. And today, they're taking me through the key moments of the passage from Glastonbury...
1: Thank you very much, Glastonbury!
0: ...to catastrophe. The
1: worst Labour result in modern times. Obviously very sad, the result we've
0: achieved.
1: The central question facing the party now is where did it go so wrong?
0: Our story begins in a hotel basement one damp Sunday morning in Brighton during the 2019 Labour conference.
3: That was really the conference at which the Corbyn Project fell apart. John McDonnell,
0: the shadow chancellor and one of Corbyn's oldest,
3: closest political allies. Carrie Murphy, Ian Lavery, he was Labour's chairman. All the people who were responsible for coordinating Labour's election campaign, apart from Corbyn himself, They met in the bowels of the Brighton Metropole Hotel, where hours earlier they'd all been drinking, to pour over private polling for Labour's upcoming election campaign. Who
0: had done the polling for them?
3: Well, it was YouGov data that they had bought in. YouGov do this very fancy system of polling. And there it was that they found that Labour were on course for a cataclysmic defeat. Labour was destined to win just 138 seats, torn between Remainers on one side flocking to the Liberal Democrats and uh, Leavers on the other, flocking to the Brexit Party and the Conservatives. And it was at that moment John McDonnell really was confirmed in his view that the only way for Labour, and indeed his life's work, his socialist project, to win power would be to go for a remedial course of going full Remain but some of Macdonald's most trusted comrades disagreed. A very memorable contribution came from Ian Lavery, former president of the National Union of Mine Workers, and he was at once bemused and horrified by this poll, according to people in the room. He said people in the north just won't vote Tory. It won't happen. He allegedly said YouGov were a Tory firm and not to be trusted. And there, John Macdonald, Seamus Mill, Corbyn's chief advisor and others began a battle that would eventually tear the Corbyn project apart and that had already been bubbling under, which was, which way should Labour jump? And they don't resolve it, presumably. There's not an agreement at this meeting. Well, what's resolved is the fact that one camp, the leave camp, as it were, the Milne, Carrie Murphy, Corbyn's chief of staff, Ian Lavery, and other election officials aligned to them. What is resolved at that point is that they no longer trust John McDonnell. John McDonnell has detached himself once and for all from this small band of comrades that refer to themselves as the project. We've heard from Carrie Murphy that John
2: McDonnell's decision to try and take her out in the wake of the 2019 conference of the project. These are people who no longer feel a great deal of solidarity or sympathy for each other in many circumstances... Victory
0: has many friends, defeat is an orphan, someone else's orphan. For the protagonist, a person other than them is always responsible, so they spend time and ink pinning the blame on each other. For the rest of us though, it's more like a Greek tragedy in which we try and see how the character flaws of the various players turn the near victory of 2017 into the utter disaster of 2019. And left Jeremy Corbyn and John McDonnell, according to reliable sources, not even speaking. You begin the book with three quotes: Um, "Heavy is the head that wears the crown," which you ascribe to Stormzy. I always thought it was Shakespeare, but you've got Stormzy here. Um, (laughs) Then, "We won the argument," says Jeremy Corbyn, and I own this disaster. John McDonald, Why have you got those three quotes
3: there? Well, the, the reason we ascribe it to Stormzy is because Stormzy is sort of the tribune of Corbynism, as it were, in, in the musical world.
1: Ladies and gentlemen, our solo artist of the year, Stormzy!
3: Yo, what's going on? Big got Jeremy Corbyn. So Carrie Murphy herself, Corbyn's chief of staff, said that was a line from a Stormzy song. Hey. Oh, Jeremy hey. We won the argument, is that famous quote Jeremy Corbyn broke his silence after the 2019 election. He didn't apologise, famously, or, or at least not directly. He didn't take personal responsibility, although he had done in private on the night of that disastrous defeat. But he said something that really, really antagonised the people who didn't like him, and indeed some people on his own side, which was, don't worry, we've lost this election but we've won the argument, by which he meant that his leadership, that five-year project, had precipitated some degree of ideological shift or whatever. And we conclude that there is a degree of truth in that. We are now thinking and talking about the state and austerity in a slightly different way. The Macdonald quote was what he said in the wake of the defeat. But what nobody has yet heard is a proper apology anybody at the top of the party saying yes this is on us
4: okay let me make it clear then it's on me it's on me let's take it on the chin i own
3: this disaster he took the personal responsibility that jeremy corbyn hadn't
4: if if anyone's to blame it is me full stop
3: that is significant because mcdonald looms so large over this story
4: my dad was on the docks my mum was a cleaner we lived with my grand in what now is described as a slum. I went to train to be a priest.
3: We call it the project. It might as well be called John MacDonald's project.
4: The left has to be ready to move into government. Has to be. You've got to demonstrate you're government ready.
3: Unlike anybody else, he toiled and toiled in the 20 or so years he was in Parliament before 2015 to keep the parliamentary left alive
4: i would swim through vomit to vote against this bill poverty in my constituency is not a lifestyle choice
3: john mcdonald was on the back benches delivering alternative budgets acting as if he was on the brink of bringing the left to power whereas corbyn was always pounding the pavements protesting against apartheid british troops in northern ireland and what have you you know the chagos islands east timor
1: today in solidarity with the people in Jerusalem. Nuclear weapons are indiscriminate, illegal, immoral weapons of mass destruction. not we turn it around? Close down NATO.
3: And finally in 2015, the sort of Faustian bargain, as it were, is that it's his old mate Jeremy Corbyn.
4: Jeremy Corbyn. 251.
1: <laughs> we don't have to be unequal. It doesn't have to be unfair. Poverty isn't inevitable. Things can, and they will, change. Thank you very much.
4: And I was his campaign manager and I said look, just get out there and be yourself. Explain the policies we've been advocating for the last 20 years and how we've modernised those policies as
3: well. McDonald is having to grapple both with his personal ambition and principle, his friendship with Jeremy Corbyn, and all the strains and clashes of personality and style.
4: From what you're
0: saying, you seem to be suggesting, and it runs through the book, that actually the most interesting character by far in all this, and in a way the most tragic character, is not Corbyn himself, but John
3: McDonnell. I think there's a degree of truth in that. John McDonnell having told his entire life to be proved right, that the consensus within the Labour Party in British politics was the wrong course was vindicated once, in his view, in 2015, when Labour members finally elected a left-winger, and then again in 2017. Let's go back to 2017.
0: We talked about 2019. 2017, the election result of 2017.
4: And what we're saying is the Conservatives are the largest party. Note, they don't have an overall majority at this stage. Three Labour
0: loses... And yet this is somehow or other the apotheosis of Corbynism. It's the great moment.
1: Lost Conservative seats, lost votes, lost support and lost confidence. I would have thought that's enough to go, actually, and make way for a government that will be truly representative of all of the people of this country.
0: Take us through how they felt at that time.
2: They hadn't expected in their wildest dreams that they might get a result as good as that. We've heard colourfully from many of Corbyn's own staff about the feeling of returning to Portcullis house, where they had been pitied and hated. They returned with their for-the-many lanyards swishing from side to side. (laughs) They felt like they owned the place. The phrase that kind of loomed over that heady summer of 2017, which Corbyn went to Glastonbury, was government in waiting.
1: Ye are many, they are few. Thank you very much, Glastonbury!
0: It must have been an extraordinary moment for Jeremy Corbyn, on the sidelines for so long, to have gone to Glastonbury and hear those people singing those things at him I mean it must surely have
2: gone to his head somebody said of that summer particular aide said it was like waking up and thinking who put this ecstasy in my cornflakes you know it was this (laughs) this special moment I don't know if it went to his head but he needed that affirmation I think he came to depend on it
0: I remember at that time a whole lot of people who'd been critics of Corbyn saying, maybe he has got some kind of magic ingredient after all and we should, whatever we thought before, we should fall in behind him. And that, that's quite a kind of heady
3: thing for somebody like him or for the people who were around him to hear. Yeah, the responses like that. And Peter Mandelson said around the same time that Jeremy Corbyn could be leader as long as he wanted, as far as Peter Mandelson was concerned. At that point, the left really did think they had won the argument a sort of hubris did inflect the project from that point on
0: by 2018 you write that corbyn and john MacDonald weren't even talking take us through how their relationship actually got to their point what were they they agreed about everything before what their key disagreements by 2018 patrick
3: they can be summed up in two words russia and anti-semitism about a hundred
4: feet over there, beneath that tent, is actually the bench where this former spy and
1: his
0: daughter were found.
3: The poisoning of former Russian intelligence officer Sergei
0: Skripal and his daughter Yulia follows several mysterious deaths of Russians in
3: Britain. McDonald was deeply distressed and annoyed by the response of Corbyn and his closest aides to the poisonings in Salisbury. How has she
1: responded to the Russian government's request for a sample of the agent used in the Salisbury attack to run its own tests?
3: Jeremy Corbyn got up at the dispatch box and he essentially said, can we send this sample of Novichok to Russia just to make sure it was indeed the Kremlin? And even Andrew Murray, a close Corbyn aide, who has tended to take the side of the Eastern Bloc on these geopolitical questions. Well, he would
0: do as a former member of the Communist Party of Britain,
3: wouldn't he? Well, indeed. But even now, Andrew Murray says, we thought it might have been Russian gangsters and we took a measured tone. We didn't think the Putin regime could be responsible but now we completely got this wrong and this was the point at which Corbyn's approval ratings took a dive from which they would never return. So in that context, you can understand why John MacDonald at the time was incredibly keen to get out there on the airwaves and say, this was Putin.
4: He is responsible, whichever way you look at it, he is responsible. And all the evidence points to him. And we condemn Russia for this, condemn them.
3: John McDonnell essentially threatened to go down to the Kremlin with a cricket bat and and sort it out himself, whereas Corbyn was much more measured. And, you know, people can ascribe that to the influence of of Seamus Mill or Andrew Murray, but fundamentally, as with all of these things, Corbyn has much more agency in these decisions than, than, than people assume. And the second thing, and the point at which their relationship was really strained, according to the people who were there, was on anti-Semitism. Now, at the start of the summer of 2018, Labour had a debate on a new code of conduct for anti-Semitism cases. Can I ask you to look at this? What is your reaction when you see that image?
0: My reaction is that is a horrible anti-Semitic mural that was rightly taken down.
2: And how
3: long did it take you to glance at that to to make that judgment?
0: Well, look, you are showing at me on a
3: 32-inch screen on national television? In that spring, Jeremy Corbyn had been found to have supported an artist whose anti-Semitic mural was threatened to be painted over by Tower Hamlets Council. You only need to glance at that to see what it's about. It's, it's Third Reich propaganda anti-Semitism.
0: Well, look, that is why Jeremy has expressed deep regret and apologised for that.
3: And in the wake of that, there were a series of pl- aborted plans within Corbyn's office to send him to Auschwitz to give him interviews with the Israeli press to go to Jewish schools you know there's a great line from a mcdonald advisor who says if mcdonald could have he would have had Corbyn on the first plane to Jerusalem to publicly atone for the anti-Semitism crisis. None of them came to fruition apart from one plan to introduce a new code of conduct for anti-Semitism. The problem was that Labour didn't adopt the full International Holocaust Remembrance Association definition of anti-Semitism, the sort of international gold standard, because Corbyn and others around him feared that it would be used to marginalise the the Palestinian cause. And John McDonnell was basically infuriated by this, and he thought, why are we... Dying on the hill of a point of principle that to most voters in the country is beyond arcane. Corbyn refused to budge. And also there was the case of Margaret Hodge, the veteran Jewish Blairite MP, who went up to Corbyn in the Commons and said, you're an anti-Semite and a racist. Corbyn's team wanted to subject her to formal disciplinary action. McDonald thought that this was insane. Um, and in the end, there was a whole summer in which McDonald and Corbyn weren't talking. John McDonald went off and did his own thing for a while. Did you get the
0: sense that John Macdonald, through the anti-Semitism row, learned something about Jeremy
2: Corbyn that he hadn't quite understood before? I think what Macdonald was saying was, if we're at the A now of opposition, how do we get to the B of government, where we can start doing things to serve the Palestinian cause? And I think Macdonald was horrified by the fact that Corbyn allowed, I mean, this is Labour's second summer after coming within inches of government, and he allowed that summer to be dominated by this slightly deranged debate about the letter of the IHRA definition of anti-Semitism. So in other words, he wanted him to
0: be a much more pragmatic politician.
2: That's right. There was this meeting at the Institute for Government where the Shadow Cabinet had gathered and there was this kind of side discussion among Corbyn, Carrie Murphy, John MacDonald, Andrew Fisher. Some people were saying, Margaret Hodge, it doesn't matter if she's Jewish, it doesn't matter if she's one of our MPs. There are rules governing conduct in the Labour Party and you cannot just call the leader of the Labour Party a racist. And John McDonnell, people say, was gripped by this almost biblical temper. The press will destroy us for this. Our goal here is government.
0: Gabriel and Patrick, looking at all the various things you've said about the disagreements about Brexit, Russia and the Salisbury poisonings, and then the anti-Semitism, essentially on all three, you've said Macdonald is the one who has the more political brain. And yet, am I right in thinking that he then
2: gets sidelined? That was certainly John Macdonald's perception. By the time of their row over anti-Semitism in the summer of 2018, they weren't answering each other's calls By the height of the summer, they weren't talking full stop. And I think there was a lot of pain and frustration on Macdonald's behalf that he had forged the left within Parliament and driven it forward for so long. And now his counsel was listened to, but not necessarily acted upon. I mean, he's his his, his oldest comrade in politics. There's a a lovely phrase, which is John Macdonald often says that Jeremy Corbyn is his oldest friend in politics, to which his wife, Cynthia, says, no, John, he's your only friend in politics. Um, <laughs> and, I, and I think McDonald felt like he had lost something of that friendship and comradeship.
0: How is it possible, people might wonder, when you have two people who have to work quite so closely uh, together that they're not even communicating?
2: I asked somebody how bad things got because you know, every, every relationship has its tensions. Several different A's have said it was very bad and one said... I can tell you that they passed each other in a corridor and did not speak or look at each other.
0: Sounds like something out of an American high school drama where two,
2: I don't know, <laughs> kind of people are blanking each other in the school corridor. I suspect also that they're men of their generation and emotional candour working things through was not something <laughs> they'd been required to do or something which came naturally to them. <laughs>
0: I love the idea of such a generation that they weren't able to say to each other, look, my therapist has told me that I really
2: should resolve this with you now. It did require a man decades there junior, Andrew Fisher, to pay a visit to the Morning Star, John's holiday boat, in order to try and broker some sort of ceasefire.
0: Sorry, are you saying that John McDonald's holiday boat is called the Morning Star?
2: It is, yeah, yeah, yeah. No, no, it is
0: Morning Star, yeah. OK, right. Now, we should mention that in a tweet last week, John McDonnell said, just catching up on all this rubbish in the Murdoch gutter press, that's us folks, about Jeremy and me not talking. Only time over the last 40-odd years we haven't spoken is in the hours after Liverpool have beaten Arsenal. So I'm hoping for a short period of silence after the charity Shield this weekend. Let's move on to 2019. Parliament votes for an early election, first winter election in quite some time. The campaign starts. What was their mood at the beginning of that campaign?
3: Well, a very important aspect of the Corbynite psychology is the idea that hostile officials in Labour's HQ in Southside, in Westminster, were working to obstruct to sabotage without enthusiasm on Corbyn's campaign in 2017. Now, it was true that they had a parallel operation where they were trying to shore up Corbyn's sceptic MPs. They circulated a leaflet whose contents have been described to us as well, we know you hate Jeremy Corbyn, but that's good because you don't hate him half as much as I do. That went through people's letterboxes without the knowledge of Corbyn's team. So they were desperate to fight an offensive campaign, the, the, the campaign they could have fought in 2017. So The official line was optimism. The plan- Planning was optimistic in terms of the seats they were targeting and pouring resources into. But the reality was there was severe trepidation about going for an election. And multiple people, multiple aides of Corbyn's shadow cabinet ministers have basically told us, well, the only reason we went for it then was because everybody was exhausted. Jeremy was exhausted. The Brexit in Broglio had reached the end of the road and we had to do it and we had to put a brave face on it.
0: Let's look just at two key figures in this. Just explain who they are and what their personalities are. Carrie Murphy and Laura
2: Alvarez. Carrie Murphy, she was basically the woman who compensated for Corbyn's lack of executive decision making. So if you wanted something to happen in the Corbyn years, you needed to go to Carrie Murphy first. If you even wanted to go into his office, you would need to go through Carrie first and she in fact had her desk positioned right on the cusp of corbyn's own kind of special suite within the lotto complex so she she, she was you make basically, her, you make her sound like cerberus <laughs> i mean that is how she is portrayed by by many people who, you know who who love and in other instances loathe her patrick laura alvarez
3: uh, laura alvarez is jeremy corbyn's third wife Some aides gave her the very uncharitable nickname, Yoko after Yoko Ono. And Laura felt that they weren't doing enough to defend him from what she saw as spurious accusations against a good man. And especially during the 2019 campaign, they felt her influence emboldened what they saw as Corbyn's rebel mode, as one person saw it, you know, his appetite for defiance and to defy even his closest aides and advisers and and not to compromise on questions like anti-Semitism.
0: So they're in this election. Who... Is organising the election. Usually there are one or two, three or four people whose principal job is to get that election campaign going and to run it. Who was running it for Labour?
2: Well, David, this was a question which we asked again and again and again. And in the case of Corbyn's campaign, it is very difficult to get answers. I mean, Carrie Murphy is insistent that she did not make any strategic calls. And she actually, on the record, characterised claims that she was the election guru. As f-ing bollocks. And various of her <laughs> allies have even sent us pictures of John McDonnell standing by a whiteboard, writing things down at an election strategy meeting in order to add colour to the claim that he was the guy that decided on everything. I mean, if I had to kind of negotiate the wilderness of mirrors and offer my own verdicts as to who was running it, I would say... The two camps in Corbyn's court never resolved on a strategy vis-a-vis Brexit. So there were parallel and conflicting strategies within a single campaign.
0: So this is a recipe for chaos. And into that chaos, as you detail, Corbyn then adds chaos of his own. In the end, it gets to the stage whereby, Gabriel, you have some of his aides saying... Corbyn, whether consciously or unconsciously, was effectively sabotaging his own campaign.
2: That's right. So for the sake of posterity, one of Corbyn's closest advisors leaked us the entire WhatsApp thread within his office. And there is this point a few weeks out from polling day in which an aide relays the assessment of one of her colleagues to this WhatsApp group. Her name's Marcia Jane Thompson. She was a key figure in campaign. She says that Jeremy was deliberately turning up late to events and at the end of events, when it was mandatory for him to go on to his next campaign stop, he was dragging his feet and his staff are desperately trying to move him on. They've got an election to win.
1: Thank you, Harlow. This is, I think, the third time I've been here this year. I've got to go and catch a train, but I'll be back with a Labour government. After a month's worth of rain in a day, this is the soggy, miserable reality in large parts of the north.
0: good, it's
2: perfect. You may recall that the campaign was dominated in its first half by floods. During the floods, John McDonnell thought, you know, let's get back on the front foot. Boris Johnson's nowhere to be seen or heard. Let's get Jeremy up there. This was put to Corbyn and basically his colleagues are just saying among themselves, he won't do it. He just won't do it. He's not gonna be made to go to things that he wasn't told he would be doing in advance. And increasingly, they don't ask him things. They don't give him advice that he may not want to hear. Let's go to the election itself and election night, Patrick. When did
0: they first realise and recognise that it was a disaster?
3: Well, as the exit poll came in, they realised just how bad it was. The worst Labour result in modern times. Then almost immediately, they set about trying to account for the failure and Seamus Milne put together a briefing note in which he he blamed Brexit for the defeat, which was then rehearsed by Ian Lavery when he came within 800 votes of losing his own seat in Northumberland.
4: And I think that's the issue. It's not Jeremy Corbyn, it's Brexit
1: obviously very sad at the result we've achieved
4: I own this disaster
0: the election's lost the campaign for a Corbynite successor to the Labour leader is lost and you say that on the 30th of March Corbyn and Macdonald were reunited in the Labour leader's office for the last time and they posed for some photographs on the balcony and here's how you end the book, it's rather lyrical as night fell on Westminster, Macdonald stood alone on the balcony and gazed at County Hall, where he had last wielded power. He and Corbyn had missed their last chance to do so again. Without power, the project was nothing. Now, that ending
3: suggests that you see this story really as the tragedy of John Macdonald. I think, there's, I think there is some truth in that. Yeah, It is objectively tragic that he worked so hard got so close and found himself obstructed. It's objectively true that, in the end, for all the influence they claim over the steps the government have taken lately on the furlough scheme and similar, they did not achieve what they set out in politics to achieve. And to only be able to claim second-hand credit for things is, yeah, I mean, it's not the return they wanted in 2015, could have had in 2017, and some people will say it's not the return John McDonnell deserved from politics.
0: So what now for Jeremy Corbyn and John Macdonald? They're both in Parliament. Are they just reverting, essentially, to what they always were, which is oppositionists within their own party, ceding it to Keir Starmer? It's his now, and it's back to the centre-left.
2: Well, I think the divide between Corbyn and Macdonald persists. Only last week... John McDonnell told our own John Pienaar on Times Radio that he thought that Keir Starmer had done a decent job. Corbyn, meanwhile, has been far more critical and said that his wish is that Labour remains a socialist party. So there's already kind of tonal differences in how they're responding to Starmer's leadership. Isn't the terrible truth that when you win the leadership, you get the power to do
0: all kinds of things and you have that temporary window, and when you lose it again that window closes on you.
3: Well, yes, they had a short window in which they could remake the Labour Party and it is a matter of deep regret for many people who were in the room at the time that they weren't more assertive and that internal disputes, Brexit and a lot of other stuff prevented them from remaking the Labour Party with the ruthlessness that those before them did.
0: Last week on Twitter, Jeremy Corbyn's wife, Laura Alvarez, hinted that her husband might have a book of his own coming soon. Or maybe she does. She said, The mainstream press obsession with its distorted account of the previous Labour leadership goes on and on. Watch this space for a book that tells the actual truth. Keep your money for a worthwhile book. You've been listening to Stories of Our Times with me, David Aronovich, and my guests, Sunday Times Whitehall correspondent Gabriel Pogrand and Times Red Box reporter Patrick Maguire. The producer was James Shield and the executive producer was Poppy Damon. Sound design was by Volkan Kiseltog. Music was by Breakmaster Cylinder and Ketzer. You can keep up with all of Patrick and Gabriel's reporting from Westminster with a digital subscription to The Times and The Sunday Times. Visit thetimes.co.uk slash subscribe to find out more. See you soon.
3: When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer.